Well, good morning. As we say in my parts, g'day. It is really terrific to be here in Michigan. You put on your best weather for me. Uh, I was in Chicago and it snowed, and I come here to Grand Rapids, and it is fantastic, and it is so much fun. Uh, Jim and I, I promised Jim, I signed a legal disclaimer that I wouldn't talk about our college days, but uh, it's just been great to see Jim and Lisa in their own context. I know you appreciate your pastor uh, and his wife, but it was just really fantastic yesterday. Uh, I have three children, along with the Samra, four children. It was great watching Jim in the kitchen yesterday making applesauce and uh, actually teaching a bunch of Australian kids how to make applesauce. And a uh, very talented man, but it's really uh, terrific. <laughs> I know that's not the extent of his talent, but uh, I was quite impressed. Um, but it's terrific to be here and enjoyed uh, this time of ministry together. In a, just a moment, we're going to have our Bibles and we're going to be look at Matthew chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, you'll want to have them open. Matthew chapter 9, verses uh, 9 to 13 will be our main area of focus this morning. And so you'll want to have your Bibles ready for that. And I'm looking forward to what God might teach us, reminding us truth from his word. And I trust as we come to this, passage that we would have open hearts and open hands as we listen to how God might speak to us. Why don't I pray for us and then we'll jump straight into our passage. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come this morning to enter your house and to sing praises to you because you are our worthy God. And now as we come to listen to what you might say to us, we see these words that speak about the greatness of your son, the Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words of truth about the Lord Jesus, that we would revel in his glory and thus bring glory to the Father. So bless his time. Now we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm very good friends with a gentleman named Phil. Phil is uh, slightly different than me. If you were to have a look at Phil, you would see that Phil uh, himself is an older gentleman. He's in his late 50s nowadays, and you can tell by the fading tattoos on his arm the scar on his face, and just his general demeanour. Phil has not had the easiest of lives. If you were to compare Phil and myself, we're actually an unlikely duo. You see, on the one hand, Phil over here, he loves to play music and he loves to play it loud. In fact, Phil is, is partly deaf, partly because uh, when he was in his younger days, as a bit more of a wild young rocker, he used to play the drums and he's now got a bit deaf. And while Phil likes the music, I, on the other hand, like sport. It doesn't matter what sport, it can be um, ping pong, it can be golf, it can be football. I just love sport. Now, Phil and I are quite different in this regard. On a Sunday morning, you'll find me at a pretty conservative theological church where you will find me in the, the foyer welcoming people. On the other hand, you will find Phil at a large Pentecostal church in an orange vest directing traffic to a large church in our particular city. Phil had a child as a very young man where I got married a bit later in life. Phil and I are both quite different, yet there is something very compelling about Phil where I want to say I want to be around this man. Now, over the course of particularly uh, ministry, I've had a chance to meet uh, many impressive people. I meet missionaries regularly who are doing outstanding work in uh, different parts of God's world. I've met terrific pastors and teachers of the Bible and faithful Christians in the marketplace. But there is something about Phil that is different. And I've discovered, I think I finally put my finger on it when I've 
think I've come to the realization, the thing that attracts me to Phil is that Phil understands grace. Now, grace is one of those words that we love to throw around in our Christian circles. We sing about grace that is rightly amazing. We will say grace before meals. I teach at a Bible college where students will pass verbs dealing with grace. We'll name our children grace. Grace is a good thing. But what does it look like and how do you live in such a way that you exude grace? You see, my friend Phil, when you go into a room with Phil, you feel like you are the most important person in the room. Doesn't matter if you're homeless, doesn't matter if you're a millionaire, Phil understands and has had an experience in his life where he exudes this grace. And it is that grace that we're going to find this morning and how we might live it in Matthew chapter 9. And if you've got your Bible there, that's the passage that we'll be dealing with. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to be fairly straightforward in the message this morning. We're going to walk through the passage and I'm simply going to make two observations for us from this passage about grace. Now, by way of background, Matthew is the person who this story is about in Matthew chapter 9. But it's interesting, he's also the person writing it. So we're going to get some unusual insights here. Some things are going to surprise us, what Matthew includes in his account and his encounter with Jesus, but some of the things that he doesn't include might also be interesting to us. By way of background, Jesus has been inviting people to be his follower. Matthew, right from the very get-go, starts off and he, he points out that this is the true Messiah, the true Israel. This is the son of David, the heir of promise, the son of God. And as he's been going about, Jesus has been doing things that only God can do. He's been feeding masses. He's been healing people. He's been teaching people. And it's in that context where there's revolutionary, radical Jesus that we didn't quite expect turns up in Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew chapter 9 begins this way. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some teachers of the law were saying to themselves, This fellow's blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he turned to the paralyzed man and said, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Upon hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this passage, as I've said, the background is we have Jesus calling people to come and follow him in his glorious kingdom. And this idea of uncon- or this lack of convention that Jesus has filters through into this passage. You see, Jesus goes about business in a way that we would not expect. As the passage opens up, we find Jesus calling a man to be a disciple who we would not expect. Verse 9, Jesus went on and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, we, you read this for the first time and you think, well, that's no big deal. He gets a tax collector and he says, come follow me. That's, that's pretty cool. But it's mind-blowing. Any, every Jewish boy worth his yarmulke knew that a tax collector was not the sort of person you would call. You see, a tax collector was not a trusted profession. In our context in Australia, every year, I don't know why they do this, but every year they'll do a survey and they'll talk about the most trusted professions and the least trusted professions. And the least trusted professions this last year went down this, and I don't mean to cause offence if you're one of these people, uh, but coming in at number one was lawyers. (laughs) Number two, business executives. Number three, taxi drivers. Four real estate agents, five car salesmen, and rounding it out, six politicians. Now, in Jesus' day, if they were to come up with a list like that, I guarantee somewhere close to the top, you would find a tax collector. Three reasons. First of all, a tax collector was not liked in that culture because a tax collector was seen as being disloyal. The job of a tax collector is fairly simple. They would sit at a a booth, usually on a main thoroughfare, and as people would come by, they would collect taxes. They would give that money, those, those taxes, then they would pass on to Rome. And they would give that money to the empire. But here's the tension. You've got a boy named Matthew, who in the other um, parts, we, we know this guy's name's also referred to as Levi. And if you remember the name Levi from the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, they were the holy people. And yet here you have a guy, Levi, Matthew, and he is doing the most unholy of occupations. You see, he's getting money from his Jewish friends and countrymen, and he's passing that on to the Roman Empire. And for that reason, most Tax guys here, most tax collectors, they didn't get the invites to Thanksgiving meal. Okay, they were unpopular. Secondly, not only were they disloyal, they were dishonest. Because the way they made their money was this. They would collect certain portion for Rome, but any extra tax that they could get went straight into their pockets. They were known for being a shifty bunch. Okay, as we'd say in Australia, a bit dodgy. Okay, so you've got some dodgy tax collectors here and they're taking more than they need to. Thirdly, you discover that in the ancient world, the tax collector was deemed to be dirty. Here's why. We know that Jews and Gentiles were, were usually separated and the Jews kept quite away from the Gentiles. Not so with Matthew. He's having everyday dealings with the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles. And for that reason, he was deemed to be an unclean person. And yet it's this person that Jesus comes along and offers his grace to. This is astounding. 
You see, as he comes to this man, you would not expect Jesus to come to this guy. This guy should not be on the team. Jesus should be in the synagogue, finding a guy who's been at synagogue, gone to junior synagogue and, uh, his whole life, and now he's got to senior synagogue, and he, he knows the prayers. That's the sort of guy you should be calling. But no, the unconventional rabbi Jesus comes, and he extends grace, and he says to Matthew, follow me. This is astonishing. It goes on. It's even more astonishing when you see the result While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came. Now picture that. It's not bad enough that you're hanging out with one dodgy bloke. Now you've got a house full of them. In fact, they're not just tax collectors. You'll see it says sinners. In the 1984 version of the NIV, they put in inverted commas. It's like a category. Okay, you've got tax collectors and then just that other mob of dodgies. Okay, we'll call them sinners. Can you imagine what the party was like? You've got the Son of God there, and you've got these sinners. There may well have been in the corner a couple of tax collectors talking about, you know how much money I've made this year? Really ripped that guy off. We've got sinners there, people who were of ill repute. Maybe we've got some dodgy people, some tax collectors, fraternising with women dressed inappropriately. I don't know what the equivalent of the Hebrew F word is, but maybe that's being dropped. Maybe there are jokes being said. And in the midst, you have the Son of God. This is not what we expect from a young rabbi wanting to change the world. But what is this verse demonstrating to us? What is going on here? Jesus is exuding par excellence grace. He is reaching out to people who don't deserve it. And he's offering his presence. Now, we don't know in this account. We know that Matthew follows him. It doesn't mean that everybody at the party did. But there is something compelling about Jesus' presence where people feel attracted to him. Let's explore that for just a moment. In my first observation here, what I discover in this passage is that if you want to exude grace, what does living grace look like? Living grace means loving sinners. Living grace means loving sinners. You'll notice how Matthew describes it. Matthew, he says, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Hold on a minute. If I'm Matthew and I'm writing this account, there is certain material I would leave out. Surely you just put, I was there or there was a man named Matthew and Jesus said, come follow me. But he includes this little bit of, I was sitting at a tax collector's booth. You see, Matthew wanted to be very clear that this was radical, it was undeserved, and it was all grace. Friends, have you had that Matthew experience in your life? I know I have. As a teenager, I wasn't collecting taxes, but there were things that I was doing that were clearly against God's will. And though I was raised in a Christian home, I was the odd one out. I've shared with Jim before, my siblings, Deborah, Deidre, Dallas, Malcolm. Okay, it was always predetermined. And I'm not even the last one. But here's the thing. I grew up in a church, 
but it wasn't till I was a teenager that I embraced the truth that I had messed up and I knew that my life was a wreck. I knew that I was guilty. I knew that no amount of doing things could merit my favour with God and yet God comes to me and he says, you follow me. Friends, none of us are here today because God says, I'm so desperate. I really need that person on my team to make my life complete. God offers himself freely that we might participate in his very life and he does it purely from mercy. Matthew, I don't think, ever lost that. He includes these details that he was sitting at the tax collector's booth. Friends, is that fresh in your memory? The older I get as a Christian, I've been a Christian a bunch of years now, and the the more I grow as a Christian, sometimes I convince myself, well, I'm actually not that bad a person. Actually, I'm utterly depraved. And I am even this morning, as one Christian said, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to get food. Friends, you and I are all desperately in need of God's grace. Matthew understood that. Grace means loving sinners. And that's what God has demonstrated. You'll notice what Matthew excludes in his account here. One thing I didn't tell you about tax collectors, they actually made a bit of money. Okay, they made a few shekels. Okay, many of these people lived a high life. And yet Matthew does not record, Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at tax collector's booth, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up, left a lucrative career where he made a great sacrifice and as a result followed him. He didn't seem that worthy because when you've experienced the grace of God, everything that you hold so dear fades into the background. And there's a a liberty and a joy that comes when you've experienced God's grace. But let me ask you this. Where are the Matthews in your community, in your context, in your life that you are facilitating that grace to? You see, as much as I'd love to say that most of us in this story, we connect with Jesus or the disciples or we know Matthew, most of us are actually going to be like the other guys, the Pharisees. And for some of us, we are not in touch with Matthews. Friends, this passage reminds us of our own desperation. The author explains that. And the fact that these other people are attracted to Jesus' grace gives us a paradigm and a pattern of what should happen in our lives. When Matthew has a party, all of a sudden, these other people who don't yet know God come. Friends, we need to live those sort of lives. Now, how do we live that practically? For my wife and I, um, the fact that I'm married and the fact that Jim's married is one of the greatest arguments for grace you can get. Um, I think that's accurate, Jim. Yeah. But here's the thing. I married a, a, a lady, Tamara, who's here this morning, and very gracious. And one of the things that we wanted to do to express the love of God and express the grace of God that he had poured out to us was that Tamara is very big on hospitality. And so one of the things that we do, we'll often have people over from the kids' schools or different places and we'll invite their family. Well, when one of our daughters was small, she was at a a preschool and it was in when we were living in in a city of Sydney, which is a fairly liberal place uh, at all sorts of levels. We, I remember we invited some guests from my, my daughter's class. One of those couples brought their little boy, it was interesting, his name was Levi, and they brought little Levi to the party, but the people looking after Levi 
where his grandparents, our fairly young grandparents, a lesbian couple. And as they came and they sat in our backyard, I remember vividly sitting down with them thinking, how is this conversation going to go? They knew I was a pastor, they knew my denomination, they knew what I did for a living. And as the conversation began, they started throwing little hand grenades, not literally, but little hand grenades. And they started saying things about, we all know what the Christians believe, don't we? Boom. We all know what this denomination thinks about us. Boom. We all know what people view uh, us in the, the Christian community. Boom. Now, every ounce of Malcolm's being was saying, open your mouth and defend God. Defend the gospel. Defend the church. But I looked over at my gracious wife and I remembered her goal, let's serve these people and show them the love of God. Kept my mouth shut. It was hard. <laughs> but we served that day. We tried to love these folk. And you know what? In about a month or so after that, we were invited to that diverse neighbourhood in town where we found ourselves suddenly surrounded by many tax collectors and sinners. And there was an opportunity there to share the gospel. Now, I'd love to give you a good news story, uh, people come to Christ, but that's God's job. But my job was to facilitate that grace, to speak words of grace when appropriate, to let people know that just as God invites Matthew in this account, he invites you and I today, not because of our backgrounds, not because we are good people. No, he invites us because we are sinners. Some are American sinners, some are Australian sinners. Some are brown sinners, some are black sinners, some are yellow sinners, some are white sinners, some are rich sinners, but we are all sinners, we are all desperate, we are all in this group, and Jesus very graciously says, come to me. And you might be here today and you've never ever received the grace of God. I wanna tell you today, Jesus is still in the business of inviting people who don't deserve it to come to him and he still transforms lives. Do not leave this place today thinking I've gotta go out, scrub my life up, get my life right and then God will love me. God loves you in spite of your sin, in spite of my sin, he welcomes us, embraces us and says, come follow me. Now, he not only leaves us there, we know that when we follow him, he takes us on, and that's what the beautiful song that was sung about. I'll never be the same because Christ has changed me. That is the testimony of Matthew, and that is his reminder. He's telling us in this passage, Jesus is showing us, he's exuding this grace. Grace means loving sinners. Amen. Friends, when was the last time you sat down and had an awkward conversation? When was the last time you sat down and shared your life with somebody who does not yet know the Lord Jesus? For some of you, you need to go out and this passage will challenge you to find the Matthews. It can be the, the dad who you go to soccer with and watch your kids play. It can be the bus driver. It can be your neighbour. It can be the lady at the shopping centre from where you buy your groceries. It could be the person at work is a bit socially awkward, the person maybe with uh, mental illness. And God wants you to be the instrument that introduces Matthews to him. Grace, exuding grace, not just speaking about, not just thinking about, living grace. 
means loving sinners. That's exactly what Jesus did. But more than that, grace means loathing legalism. Grace means loathing legalism. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's the problem. You notice in this conversation, the people who should be excited about what Jesus are doing, are the ones who are actually antagonistic towards what he's doing. So Jesus talking about forgiveness of sins, and the Pharisees who'd set themselves apart for a life of godliness, they don't get it. They don't get Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were all about rules, about comparisons, about saying who's in and who's out. And that by nature is your default position, by the way, my default position. We love to compare. My children are here this morning with us, and a few years ago, one of, one of the things that we do in our home is that we pray at dinner, and normally our custom has just been as we sit around the table to hold hands. And uh, one day, one of my children came home and said, Dad, I've discovered how you're really meant to pray. I thought, this will be interesting. How are we meant to pray? And he said, my son Adam said, Dad, you've got to do this. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so we had a bit of a talk about that. And I said, actually, in the Bible, there's different postures. Sometimes people kneel. Sometimes they lay flat on the ground. Sometimes they lift their hands. There's many ways you can do it. So we had a bit of a discussion about that. And so any given night of of our family, we'll go to hold hands and somebody will be like, no, no, no. No, no, (laughs) But here's the thing. Inevitably, when it's prayer time at our our family, after we pray for dinner, we we give thanks to God for his good provision, inevitably, one of the children will say, Dad, Zara had her eyes open. (laughs) And when I ask, how do you know Zara had her eyes open? There's a look of, I don't know, the spirit told me, I'm not sure. But even from a young age, we love to compare. We love to think, if I act this way, if I vote this way, if I talk this way, if I go to church this many times, then I'll be here, and if somebody doesn't meet that, then surely they are unworthy. Here's the reality. You all are unworthy. But here's the temptation, to think of others lowly and ourselves more highly. That was the problem of the Pharisees. They didn't get it. And Jesus does something radical. He says, you've missed it. He quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They were all about external actions. Now, actions in and of themselves are a neutral thing. Actions can be very positive. The Bible is full of actions that are done in a godly fashion. But unfortunately for the Pharisees, they, like us, became motivated by externals, by what people thought of them with the net result being that many people would demonstrate their spirituality by what they did and what they didn't do. In fact, in the Mishnah, which would come a little bit after the time of Jesus, they have a lot of traditions that were passed on, likely at the time of Jesus, where they would say, for example, if you are a tax collector, you are unclean. If you go to a tax collector's house, guess what you are? Unclean. Jesus didn't even fit up to their, their, their standard. But here's the thing, we set standards, but if truth be known, we never keep them ourselves at the level that we want. You see, when we impose on people, you need to clean up your act, you need to get to this place before God will love you and accept you, you've missed the point. 
Sometimes I hear people saying, we've got to correct that couple, our neighbours, they're not Christians, but they're living together. Guess what? Here's a, I'm going to let you know a secret this morning. Sinners sin. That's their nature. That's your nature. If you try and tell them you need to change, get your life right, do, 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 and then God will show his mercy, you've missed it. God says, I don't want just the external. Externals come later on if they're motivated from the right thing. But he's saying here, you've got a heart problem. You know, I'd love to say in this story that I'm more like Matthew and the, tax, and the sinners and the tax collectors, but the reality is I often see myself more like the Pharisees, and I think many of us here probably do. And he says here to these Pharisees who know the Scriptures, you've missed the point. Go back and learn. And this morning, some of you need to go back and learn. I say that very graciously, but particularly those of us who have been in the faith maybe for many years, you've lost that compassion. You've lost the wonder of these songs that we sing. In fact, as we were singing it this morning, we didn't have a chance to sing all of them, but I went to, a, um, growing up a, as a, a young man, I went to a, a Methodist school, high school, and we would sing a Charles Wesley hymn every day, or a John Wesley hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? We didn't have time to sing the whole verse, but there is one verse that jumps out that's my life, my life song. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Friends, that is my song, but so often I forget my song, what my life is about, and I think I'm a pretty good person. And to, for people to be good people, loved by God, they need to do, do, do. I need to go and learn. Does your heart break with mercy, or do you simply judge? This passage, Jesus is telling us, they don't need a judge. They need a doctor. But many of us want to sit as the judge. I had a roommate at Bible college. He used to tell me we'd be talking and every now and then he'd say, Malcolm, there's only one person, there's only room for one on the judgment seat and it's not you, so get off it. <laughs> Friends, grace means loathing, legalism. And this is where we go in our passage today. Well, what does this look like? How should we then say, okay, that sounds terrific, but so What? What difference does this make? A couple of things. The first would be this. I think this passage reminds us that, first of all, some of us here need to receive grace. And not just as a one-off thing. Uh, Paul will state in, in the book of Romans that the, the Christian life begins by grace and it ends in grace. So it's not that you start in grace and then you have to merit God's favour. It's all about grace. Grace superabounds. But this passage reminds us this morning that we are desperate and in need. Some of you come this morning with heavy hearts. You've failed. It might be internet pornography. It might be your marriage is broken down. It might be because you're discouraged because of a life event and you feel that God has let you down or you have let God down. This morning, the Bible invites you, come receive his mercy. And Jesus would say to you, doesn't matter where you're at, doesn't matter what you've done, I will receive you to myself. In fact, the Bible says that God goes to such extravagant lengths that Jesus himself will give up his life 
so that you would come and have a relationship with him. Today, the application for you is very simple. Receive grace. For those of you who may have experienced, like I did many years ago, remind yourself of that grace. Secondly, this passage challenges us to repent. You see, in this passage, many of us see ourselves, don't we? And we need to repent of our lack of grace. We've boxed the Christian life to be just about do, do, do. Measure up, measure up, measure up. But friends, that grows old and it's unachievable. Friends, when we expect things of other people and we put a standard there that we ourselves can't attain, we set up this legalism that Jesus loathes. And today, we need to go and learn. Ask God today, God, break my heart. Take me back to that first love that I had as a teenager or as a boy in Sunday school or as a girl or a single mom when I trusted you. Lastly, we need to recommit ourselves to being a tool of grace. You see, Matthew, Jesus came along and he offered that gift of grace to Matthew. You know how Jesus offers that gift of grace today? He does it through his church. He does it through other Matthews who will invite sinners to meet this Jesus. I like what Max Licato talks about in his book, In the Grip of Grace. He talks about a customer he has in his church, and I'm not suggesting it here for Jim, you go bankrupt. But um, here's what he would do. He would take a dollar and he would offer at the end of every sermon, if you come down the front, I will give you a dollar. For no reason, just grace. You take it, spend it on whatever you want. Very few people would actually take him up on this. He did this to demonstrate grace. There would always be the five-year-old boy, you know, bustling down the aisle, but being restrained by the mother. But one day a lady named Myrtle came to him and she said, Max, I'll take it. Max gave her the dollar. She went away and later on Max ran into her uh, later that week in the city and he joked with her, he said, hey Myrtle, how did it go? How'd you spend your dollar? She said, well actually I haven't spent it. He was a bit shocked. Oh, well, what happened? She said, well, when I got back to my seat, a youngster asked me, can I have that? And Myrtle said, sure. It was given to me as a gift, so I'm giving it to you. Friends, there is a mentally challenged person in your circle that God is wanting you to offer that dollar of grace to. Don't keep it in your pocket. There is that person in your family that may have done wrong things, made poor decisions, life is a mess. And this morning, God might be saying to you, offer that person one dollar. There might be the person at work who knows nothing of the gospel, maybe an immigrant from another country, and God is saying, pass on my grace. Friends, God has graced us, and he urges us uh, in the scriptures to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? How do you live grace? My friend, Phil the drummer gets it. It means loving sinners and loathing legalism. May that be your joy, your delight, as you serve him with hearts of obedience. Let me pray. Master, we thank you for this reminder this morning. Lord, our hearts often grow so cold so quickly. I pray that just as Matthew experienced the wonder of this amazing grace, so that you would remind us that each of us were needy sinners when you stepped in and you lifted us up, and Lord, I pray that we would find our identity not in the things that we do externally, 
but in the reality that you have saved us. Help us to pass on this grace because you are our strong God and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.